I'm Bonnie Glazer, Managing Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. On June 3rd, there was a near collision between a U.S. and a PRC destroyer in the Taiwan Strait. According to a statement issued by U.S. Indo-PACOM, a U.S. Navy destroyer, the USS Chung-Hun, and a Canadian warship were conducting a routine south-to-north Taiwan Strait transit through waters where high seas freedoms of navigation and overflight apply. The Luyang-3, a PLA destroyer, overtook the Chung-Hun on her port side and crossed her bow at 150 yards. The U.S. warship maintained course and slowed to 10 knots to avoid a collision. U.S. Indo-PACOM stated that the actions of the PRC destroyer violated the maritime rules of the road of safe passage in international waters. So how dangerous was this incident? Why do U.S. warships sail in these waters, and do they do so in accordance with international law? What steps should be taken to ensure that accidents do not take place between U.S. and PRC naval vessels? To discuss these questions, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Peter Dutton, who is Professor of International Law in the Stockton Center for International Law at the U.S. Naval War College and an adjunct professor of law at New York University School of Law. His research focuses on international law of the sea, Chinese views of sovereignty and international law, and China's maritime expansion. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Peter. Thanks, Bonnie. It's always a privilege. So, Peter, can you tell us why the United States conducts these transits? How long the U.S. has been doing this? Um, have the operations increased or have they remained constant? And are we the only country that sails through the Taiwan Strait or do other countries do this as well? Well, multiple uh, officials of the United States have said that we're going to fly, sail and operate wherever international law allows. Um, that's because it's seen uh, as the U.S. by the U.S. as a vital interest um, in terms of our maritime trade and our maritime security. This is a corridor where high seas freedoms apply. Uh, both sides of the Taiwan Strait have territorial sea, but it's EEZ in the middle. This is where we're passing and this is where high seas freedoms apply. And the Chinese actually undertake similar kinds of transits when they go through the Miyako Strait in the Ryukyu Island chain. Um, they don't expect the Japanese to get up in arms about, uh, you know, how the Chinese military is exercising their right to fly, sail, and operate wherever international law allows. And the Japanese, in fact, do not. Do the Japanese monitor? Sure, they do. Um, do, do they uh, complain? Uh, no. Do they, uh, you know, do they think it's a violation of law? No, they don't. Um, it's really one of those things where the PRC is is an outlier in this case when uh, it's a bit of do as I say, not as I do in terms of how they they operate in the waters of East Asia. And in this case, the Canadians uh, were sailing alongside the U.S. So is that common? And are there other countries that sail alongside the U.S. or just conduct Taiwan Strait transits themselves? Yeah, it's it's not actually common for the United States to uh, do Taiwan Strait transits with other countries. This is the second time we've done one with Canada, but uh, to my recollection, we have not done one with other countries, but other countries do them. The United Kingdom, uh, France, Australia have all done them as well. So the statement by U.S. Indo-Pacific Command mentioned that the maritime rules of the road of safe passage in international waters were violated. What does that mean? What rules were violated? 
Well, the Chinese violated two rules, really. The first is the collision regulations. Um, these are these are regulations. It's not really the same status as international law, but it is uh, a series of agreed res uh, regulations through the international maritime organizations that all countries have signed up to, to ensure safety at sea. And there is an international law requirement that safety at sea be uh, uh, managed through something called due regard. Due regard is the uh, responsibility of all states operating in an area of high seas freedoms to operate safely in relationship to others exercising the same freedoms around them. So. Uh, those were the two areas that the that the Chinese, I think, violated. I was at the Shangri-La Dialogue, and I had an opportunity to pose a question to Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu about this incident. And in his reply, he stated, and I'll quote, we must prevent attempts that want to use those freedoms of navigation and innocent passages as a pretext to exercise hegemony of navigation. As defense minister, I see a lot of information about foreign vessels and fighter jets coming to areas near our territory. They are not here for innocent passage. They are here for provocation. So can you unpack that for us a little bit? Um, why does the PRC view these Taiwan Strait transits as provocative? What are they signaling by their behavior? And how do you interpret General Lee's response? Well, um, General Lee's response is a bit odd, frankly, um, because innocent passage only applies in the territorial sea. And this is nowhere, these Taiwan Strait uh, passages transits are nowhere near uh, the territorial sea. As I mentioned earlier, it's an area of high seas freedoms. Um, and in terms of hegemony of navigation, that's a little odd as well, because, I mean, these are global rules. These are, in fact, these are rules that, that, that China signed up to when they, when they acceded to the convention, but they're global rules applied by, uh, by nearly every country around the world. And so hegemony of navigation is a really odd thing to say. I mean, that said, uh, uh, the Chinese do, uh, they're pretty clear that they consider them pr provocative because they perceive that these are about uh, political support for Taiwan. Now, you know, in my conversations with Taiwanese, I don't think the Taiwanese see them as, you know, essential political activities. Uh, but I think especially, especially in an election year in which, you know, the Chinese leaders are concerned about uh, the possibility of another DPP candidate being elected in, in Taiwan. They are particularly aware to uh, political signaling or the possibility of it. Are there other dangerous maneuvers that the Chinese have taken in the Taiwan Strait? And have they undertaken dangerous maneuvers like this elsewhere, like in the South China Sea? Or is this really unusual? Well, I'd say both, actually. Um, yeah, there are other examples of dangerous maneuvering. I mean, just recently, we know of the dangerous uh, maneuvering uh, around the American reconnaissance aircraft. Additionally, in the past, there have occasionally been dangerous interactions. You can think of the 2009 impeccable incident, uh, and you can think of some of the some of the interactions between American vessels in the South China Sea and some, some Chinese naval vessels over the years have been fairly assertive uh, and dangerous. But overall, in the Taiwan Strait at least, this is a fairly new pattern of behavior. That's why I say, in essence, it's both. What do you think the trigger was? Do you think that it was because it was conducted with a Canadian vessel? I mean, you noted before that the United States has sailed through the Taiwan Strait with Canada in the past, but I think the time previously that was at least publicly reported, it was a Coast Guard vessel on the Canadian side. So maybe this was the first time that it was a Canadian warship 
sailing with the U.S. So that occurs to me as maybe one potential trigger or just the fact that it coincided with the Shangri-La dialogue, which even if it wasn't planned to deliberately coincide with it, everybody knew almost a year in advance what the dates were going to be for the Shangri-La dialogue. So does that speculation make sense or do you think it was something entirely different? Well, I, yeah, no, I think it does uh, make some sense. Um, I, although I, I basically reject the concept of, of trigger, uh, you know, related to Canada's uh, Coast Guard vessel versus warship. Um, the bottom line is these are lawful passages, plain and simple. And these are, they were both state vessels. There was essentially no response in September when the uh, American and Canadian vessels went through the Taiwan Strait, at least nothing publicly reported. So I think it's something other than that. I think it's largely the context of the run-up to the elections in Taiwan in 2020 or January 2024, and uh, and the fact that the PRC I think is signaling its real concern about the political direction on Taiwan. So the Chinese, of course, say that they abide by international law and conventions and norms, but it appears that in many cases they don't. So how do you square that circle? You know, the, the, the Chinese have their own version of international law, as Isaac Cardin's book uh, so, so well lays out. Uh, and so, uh, you know, do the Chinese abide by international law of the sea? I mean, there's so many examples in, in which they do not, right? Um, but in terms of the rules of the road, I think we've actually had a pretty good uh, track record over time. I've already mentioned that there have been various uh, times when there was political signaling. But overall, I think if uh, you talk to the fleet commanders, what you hear is that uh, most of the uh, interactions are professional, they're safe, they're, um, they are not dangerous. And so, uh, you know, I think what we, we need to recognize is that this is a period of time in which the, the Chinese are attempting to send political signals. I, I think there are safer ways to send those political signals, uh, but I think that's essentially what's going on. So what are the ways that the PLA Navy ship could have signaled its dissatisfaction in a safe manner that was consistent with international law and practice? Well, I mean, you know, always political statements versus operational statements are going to be much safer, right? But but typically, I mean, this is not uncommon for coastal states to signal a particular security interest or a particular desire to um monitor what's going on. And so you see um, ships, uh, naval ships uh, doing it alongside escorts uh, as a ship is traveling through uh, a strait. This happens all the time with uh, British ships going through uh, the English Channel. Uh, bring British ships will monitor and escort Russian vessels, for instance, as they go through the English Channel. Um, they don't cut in front of them 150 yards away, uh, but they're sending a signal of, of interest, of concern, and, and, uh, and that they are monitoring the other side. Um, so, you know, I think, I think even multiple escorts, for instance, is, is a way that you can signal. Additionally, I mean, uh, one another way is for a flyover. This is actually pretty common um, for American naval vessels to have flyovers from coastal states, uh, sometimes uh, just barely observing the minimum safety requirements above uh, the altitude. But uh, and in fact, this happened once to me when I was on uh, the Seventh Fleet uh, Command flagship as we were approaching Hong Kong. Uh, and this this was after the turnover. Uh, and we got a, um, shall I say, welcome by the Chinese uh, Air Force. Um, they they uh, sent quite a few aircraft just overhead just to make sure we were aware of their presence and their interest. 
So if, in fact, a collision occurred between two vessels, what would likely happen? I mean, how great is the risk of a military escalation? I think from my perspective, there would likely be at least a political crisis. But would this necessarily escalate militarily? And do we have the mechanisms in place, the communication mechanisms, in order to diffuse a situation and maybe even to offer assistance if there were actually people in the water? Uh, you know, that that's a real serious, the, the last point that you brought up there is a really serious problem, right? So we, we know that there's a hotline that exists that doesn't seem to apparently get answered um, when there is a, a crisis or a concern, at least uh, it, it, we don't have a good track record of it yet. It's really important that a improved crisis uh, communication system be established over time. Um, but in terms of, a, of an actual incident, um, you know, it depends on the degree of damage. Um, most likely, um, ship uh, commanders would know how to uh, limit the the uh, the damage from a collision at sea. Uh, but any collision at sea, given the mass and momentum of these vessels, would be serious uh, and would would injure, perhaps even kill sailors on on board uh, the vessels. And and so I I think um, maintaining uh, a, a um, a stability throughout the crisis is possible because the first thing that everybody's going to be concerned about is um, is safety of the crew and uh, the the well being of everybody on on board and of navigating the vessel safely out of that circumstance. Um, but uh, you know, I think what would happen next would be both vessels would continue navigating and communicating. And you're exactly right; this would be a very serious uh, political crisis at at a minimum. It's always possible that there would be a military escalation, but my view is that's not entirely likely in a situation like this. You know, you point out there is a duty to render assistance at sea to, to uh, individuals and vessels that are that are harmed or stranded. Um, that duty doesn't um, uh, end simply because you have a uh, opponent at the other end of the collision. Um, and so uh, that would be the next thing that would be on uh, the ship commander's mind. After they ensure the safety of their vessel and the crew, they communicate effectively to the chain of command, and then they render assistance to anybody that needs it. Um, looking for ways to de-escalate, if at all possible. Chinese officials and PLA officers are apparently telling senior foreign counterparts that they think that the United States is trying to goad China into a conflict. And you, of course, will remember the what we call the October surprise in October of 2020, when we were hearing similar things from the PLA that the United States was going to start a conflict or use force in some way in the South China Sea. And at that time, it was the chairman, General Milley, who talked to his counterpart and convinced him that the U.S. didn't have that intention. So I'm curious, do you think that the Chinese really believe that we want to go them into a conflict? And if so, how can the U.S. convince China that this isn't our intention? Uh, yeah, I think it's um, out of the question entirely that we would try to goad China into any kind of conflict. Um, that is not in our interest nor in, in anyone else's. Um, but I, I think the Chinese fear, frankly, um, that because there is a, a shifting power dynamic in the region that does, in fact, in some ways favor China, um, 
you know, that that we would react out of that kind of fear. I think um, our our uh, approach to strategy, our approach to politics and our approach to security are all much more sophisticated than that. And uh, and that we would not in any circumstances try to goad China into conflict. Stability is is what we are looking for in all circumstances, especially cross-strait uh, stability. So so no, I'm, I'm frankly quite interested in the 1980s uh, relationship between the, the uh, United States and the Soviet Union and how we were in a time of a similar time of of significant uh, military tensions, able to find ways to de-escalate those tensions. These mechanisms were built on um, a few abiding uh, interests, but most importantly, they were uh, built on an abiding desire to to, uh, avoid conflict with each other. Um, So I think uh, going back and looking at uh, exactly how we negotiated the the dangerous military activities agreement with the Soviet Union in 1989, after some pretty bad, pretty bad crises that that make what's going on with the Chinese right now pale in comparison. You remember the uh, KAL-007, the shoot down of that aircraft. You remember the attack on a military attache in East Germany. Um, and and uh, any number of other similar types of things that happened with the Soviet Union that where people actually died, many people actually died. And so we were able to navigate that successfully with political will on both sides. And, and that's what I would hope to see now. Well, of course, we do have some agreements with China. And as you know, in 2014, the U.S. and China signed an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, on the rules of behavior for safety of air and maritime encounters. Can you tell us what the goal was of that MOU? And like, is it fair to say that it's not working effectively? You know, first of all, I do think it it has been working effectively um, on the whole. Um, And by that, I mean, uh, the level of interactions over the last decade or so between the U.S. and the PLA Navy, I think, have been increasingly uh, stable and and professional. And I think that was a, a, an important goal of those MOUs was to ensure the professionalization of our interactions. And, and that has been successful. So to that degree, at least, I would say it was a successful process. At the same time, we have to recognize that under no circumstances will powerful states um, forego, uh, you know, the the additional political signaling that goes on on occasion when a state feels its interests are being um, are, are being affected uh, and it can't get through any other way. And so sometimes you're going to see a power based. Um, signal, but uh, but what you need to to do is ensure that that signal is safely sent. And uh, the Chinese uh, know the difference and are, I think, uh, pretty careful to observe the difference. And uh, I would expect that even when these sort of you know muscular signals are being sent, uh, that that they are done so safely going forward. And I think part of this has to do with the increasing uh, operational professionalism over time that resulted in our agreements. And one of the agreements was the Code of Unplanned Encounters at Sea. And of course, it was first a multilateral agreement and then later was adopted bilaterally. Do you think that that has been important? One person who is a Navy commander told me that initially 
there were unexpected encounters, but now the Chinese know when any foreign ship is entering anywhere near their waters. And so according to that individual, there's no such thing as an unplanned encounter anymore. And so cues is really not terribly effective and the Chinese don't always use it. Well, that's a, it is interesting. I mean, it's quite clear that uh, the Chinese have improved their capabilities since Q's was, I think it was late in the Obama administration when that, when that was agreed. And uh, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of advances in China's maritime domain awareness. So you're right. Encounters are much more anticipated. But I also observe that they remain professional. And that's really the ultimate goal on both sides and no matter what the agreement is. I also wanted to ask you about how important it is that the United States is not a signatory of the Convention on the Law of the Sea. You know, lots of people say that China is a signatory, the U.S. is not, and therefore we don't really have any any right to be criticizing them. So how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, um, yes, I think it's terrible that we're not a, 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 <laughs> a party to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. It is fundamentally vital to our national interests that we preserve those rights to fly, sail, and operate anywhere uh, around the world where international law currently allows. We want to preserve that. Um, at the same time, these these have risen to the level of customary international law. That is, that is not just an American point of view. That is um, widely accepted point of view. So, the navigational freedoms and the and the architecture of na- uh, of navigational freedoms versus coastal state rights um, is pretty well settled, and uh, and so the Chinese are putting pressure on it. And uh, unfortunately, we can't adequately put pressure back because we're not members of the convention. Uh, but we do have the Freedom of Navigation Operations Program. We do have um, uh, other other ways in which we engage with the international law community in order to preserve these rights. And, uh, and that's the best we can do under the circumstances. Lastly, I want to ask you about your own interactions with Chinese experts, whether they be from the PLA Navy uh, or from their sort of civilian research institutions and how useful you find those, especially right now. I mean, for the last 18 months, there hasn't even been a meeting of the Military Maritime Consultative Arrangement, the MMCA, which is supposed to talk about these incidents when they happen or if there's any unprofessional maneuvers that take place. Do you find that talking with experts or PLA officers in China helps to reduce the distrust and find ways forward, or is it a bad substitute? Boy, um, looking for ways to reduce this, the distrust um, is a full-time job, but um, a, an effort in which you can't expect a lot of fruit to be born. It's, it's unfortunate, frankly. In trying to engage with the, with the Chinese um, Often I feel like we're we're just talking past each other, um, but I keep doing it because um, you know you hear the incremental changes, and in my in my view, that's a really important thing um, to continue to be committed to the possibility of a breakthrough eventually um, is is something that I think is just simply worth doing. I did notice over time uh, a shift in the Chinese approach to how they 
um, how they articulate the rights uh, in the exclusive economic zone. Initially, and you'll recall after the 2001 EP3 incident, the Chinese were insistent that international law uh, gave coastal states the right to security interests in the exclusive economic zone. And over time, I think the Chinese have uh, have come to see the lack of wisdom in that point of view, especially as their navy is getting larger. And they've shifted to things that fundamentally reflect political interests in the, in the way they they describe uh, the operations. Um, and so that's progress. It's slow, it's minor, but it's progress. And uh, at least as you continue to talk, you you hold open the possibility of progress. And so I think it's not good at all that the MMCAs have, um, have, have gone by the wayside. I will say that one of the things as I was reading uh, on the, the DMA, the Dangerous Military Activities Agreement that we had with the Soviets is that there was in fact for um, for really 60, almost 60 years, a, a consistent um, bilateral military consultative mechanism, uh, basically uh, focused in Germany, uh, East Germany and West Germany. And uh, and that mechanism, was that, that line of communication remained open no matter how bad the tensions got. And, and that served us well over time. And I think it's exactly the kind of attitude that both sides need to take uh, in the U.S.-China relationship. We've been talking with Dr. Peter Dutton, who is Professor of International Law in the Stockton Center for International Law at the U.S. Naval War College and an adjunct professor of law at New York University School of Law. Thanks again. Thanks, Bonnie. 